We have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Are you a broken vessel, weighted down with discouragement, illness, or perhaps a disability? Well, take heart. Whatever your burden may be, God offers treasures that will transform your life. Hello, dear listeners. You're listening to Broken Vessels, Hidden Treasures. And here are your hosts, Paul and Tabitha Norris. A 19th century American novelist once said, Christ and the life of Christ is at this moment inspiring the literature of the world as never before. It may confess him or it may deny him, but it cannot exclude him. Jesus is the sweetest name we know. Of course, many of us enjoy learning more of him through the Bible, particularly the Gospels, but would we ever think to seek him out in poetry? Few of us have paused to consider the incredible historical influence Jesus had on English poets and writers from mere centuries ago. And yet, here with us today to talk about this fascinating topic, our favorite media commentator from The Daily Wire, screenwriter, award-winning author, and his latest book, The Truth and Beauty, Andrew Clavin. Andrew, welcome to Broken Vessels, Hidden Treasures. Thanks very much. It's great to be here. First off, we want to congratulate you on your recent publication of The Truth and Beauty, How the Lives and Works of England's Greatest Poets Point the Way to a Deeper Understanding of the Words of Jesus. For all who love literature and love Jesus Christ, this thought-provoking book hits the mark. It's really captivating. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Andrew, I'll admit that I'm not the biggest reader. However, your book and your mastery of bringing poetry and stories to life changed my perspective. This book takes such a unique approach of exploring the words of Jesus through the lives of several of history's greatest writers that I couldn't put it down. How would you say this book differs from others you've written? Well, for most of my life, I've been a crime writer, a writer of mystery stories, action stories. Uh, they're mostly about people getting killed and shooting at one another and uh, moments of, of suspense and terror and violence. Uh, so this is entirely, I would say there's nothing, when you ask how it's different, I would have to wonder how it could it be possibly the same. Uh, and I think I think it really uh, goes off in a different direction. And it, it's, it's a, a book, I, I don't think it's a book anyone else would have written. And I think that that has always mattered to me. It's always mattered to me to produce things that you can't find anywhere else, whether I'm writing uh, mystery stories or, or books like this. And I, I think I'm very, it's a very personal book and a book that uh, is very important to me. I'm very connected to it. Well, earlier this year, Andrew, we had the pleasure of reading your memoir, The Great Good Thing, A Secular Jew Comes to Faith in Christ. Being a little familiar with your background, further piqued our interest in reading through The Truth and Beauty. Would you tell us about yourself? How did literature play a part in leading you to faith in Jesus Christ? Oh, yeah, it was where I, I started. You know, I wanted uh, desperately to become an American writer, and I loved uh, mystery stories. And I started out by reading uh, it's the great American mystery writers like Raymond Chandler, who wrote the Philip Marlowe books, and Adash Hammett, who wrote uh, the Maltese Falcon. And, and these were books I noticed after a while 
that were very much connected to uh, Arthurian legends, the legends of King Arthur and the quest for the Holy Grail. And so I thought, well, I want to study that so I know more about them. And I started reading a lot of the King Arthur legends. And I started to realize, well, gee, you know, the, the, the Christian religion uh, feeds into these stories very deeply. It runs as a, as a seam through these stories. And I was a, a Jewish kid, and I, we didn't have a, a, a New Testament in the house. And we certainly never had any kind of sense that Jesus was who he said he was or anything like that. It just wasn't something that even came up. But I went out just as, as literary research uh, to learn more about uh, Western literature, which I wanted to be a part of. I went out and bought myself a, a Bible. Um, it's a book that is, is almost crumbling, but I still have it on my shelf today. And uh, and I sat down to read the gospel according to St. Luke. And I, I tell the story in my memoir that my father walked in on me and, and caught me reading the New Testament. And he was furious because, you know, he was he kind of thought of the Christians as the enemy, as the anti-Semites, as people who persecute Jews. And uh, the, the funny thing, of course, about it is I'm a 15-year-old boy. He could have walked in on me reading a lot of stuff uh, and doing a lot of stuff that uh, I shouldn't have been doing. But he walked in on me reading the Gospels and he was furious. But but then as I as I went forward and into into even into my career, I, I began to realize that the Jesus and the Gospels were at the center of everything. They were at the center of every thought that writers uh, thought, every word that they wrote in in the West uh, that they defined. They were at the he was at the core of Western thought and Western art. And that really fascinated me. And I had to deal with it. I wrestled with it. I started to struggle with what did it mean? What did it mean that this one story, this one man could be at the center of everything I believe to be true and beautiful? And, you know, I went through tough times when I was a kid. I had I had a terrible uh, breakdown when I was a young man and I was saved, I believe, miraculously by a brilliant psychiatrist who who I always tell people I'm one of the few people I know who ever went sane. I actually went from being very, very uh, miserable to being quite happy. And once I became happier. And once I I didn't have to be afraid that God would be a crutch, I started to think, you know, it means something that that so much of what I believe and so much of what I love centers around God and centers around the Bible. And I and I started to pray and I wasn't praying to anyone in particular. I was praying to God, but I didn't have any kind of picture of what God was like. And over the next five years of prayer, my life was transformed. Uh, Just so much better, so much more beautiful, so much more hooked into reality. And I finally said to God, you know, I, I don't know what I, you're I'm nobody. You're God. What what can I do for you when, when you've done this wonderful thing for me? And almost like a voice in my head, it wasn't quite, but it was almost it was instantaneous. The answer came back. Well, you should be baptized. And I literally I literally said out loud, you got to be kidding me. You know, why would I want to do that? You know, <laughs> but but I then went back and I thought, you know, I've been reading the Bible all my life as literature. What would happen? If I went back and read it as if it were simply the truth, as if it were a reportage. And and that and I found out that, yeah, there was a reason that Jesus was at the center of of Western thought and, and at the center of my thought and at the center of every story I loved and everything I told it was because he was the truth. You know, and, and I think um, and I think at that point, it was just a matter of integrity uh, to become baptized, even though it caused me problems. It caused me problems in Hollywood where I was writing movies. It, it caused me uh, problems with my family, you know, it, but, it, but it just, I couldn't be dishonest about it. Uh, and it was, of course, one of the, with, with marrying my wife, it was the best decision in my life. Oh, praise the Lord. Your book includes fascinating stories of painters and poets of the Romantic era, including Hayden, Wordsworth, and Keats. For those of us who haven't 
been avid readers. Educate us. How would you sum up the Romantic era? I wanted to write this book so you didn't have to know anything about poetry to read it. I, I hope when you finish it, you'll be a little bit more interested in poetry, but that's not really what it's about. Because the Romantic era was was so much like our era, it's almost uncanny. Uh, in the same way we went through this revolution in the 60s that changed the way everybody thought, they had this revolution that was a violent revolution, the French Revolution, that everybody thought was going to bring the new era was going to bring paradise and peace, and we were going to get rid of all these oppressive things like the church and kings and uh, customs and traditions. All those things were going to be wiped away. And instead, it resulted in uh, violence, the, the terror, the guillotine, a, a world war in the sense that the Napoleonic Wars ranged all across Europe and Russia and Egypt. And, and it went on and on. And some of the, these writers who had thought, oh, here's the new age, suddenly began to think, no, you know, this is not working out. And all the issues that were coming up were issues that we face today. So science was suddenly exploding, and that was really undercutting faith. People were losing their faith in religion, uh, really for the first time in a, in a full way in, in European culture. Uh, people were starting to question, well, if it's safe, that there's no God, well, maybe there's no such thing as truth. Maybe there's no such thing as moral truth. And maybe what's good for you is, is different than what's good for me. Uh, people started to question marriage and gender roles for the, really for the first time that it became a major movement. They started to talk about free love and why can't everybody just sleep with anybody he wants to? And why can't women sleep with as many people as men do? And, and, of course, there was a, the political thing, the same thing we're facing now, where this radical politics that was exemplified by the French Revolution was at war with conservative politics. People saying, hey, the French Revolution didn't work. And, and when people changed their mind, as William Wordsworth did, he started out as a radical and became a conservative, uh, they were canceled. They, you know, Wordsworth was attacked savagely for, for basically saying the French Revolution hadn't worked and becoming a far more conservative person politically. Hmm. So it was very much like today. And and uh, my feeling about it, and I've been reading these poets and about these poets all my life, my feeling about it is at the center of this uproar was the loss of faith, was hmm. the rise of, of unbelief. And that was what had pulled the rug out of truth, you know, whether there was truth. It had pulled the rug out of uh, gender roles. Why should a woman act like a woman and a man act like a man? It had pulled the, the rug out of the idea that the world is a a sinful place and will always be a sinful place and replace that with this idea that, oh, if we just got our politics right, everything would be utopia. And, and so these poets had to deal with that. And they didn't deal with it as philosophers, like a lot of uh, German philosophers did. Instead, they dealt with it just by experience, by saying, this is what I see. This is what I feel the way poets do. Right. And they created works of spectacular beauty. And what I found is that in some of those works, even when they didn't mean it, they were pointing the way back to what they'd lost, which was their faith. And some of them changed, like guys like Wordsworth. He ended up, he started out, someone called him a semi-atheist, but he ended up a Christian. Uh, Coleridge was the most brilliant. Uh, he had the highest IQ of any of them. He was. He always understood that Jesus was at the heart of it. He always knew that, that Christianity had to be held on to. I mean, he was a preacher, really. Um, and, and and then there were others like Keats who just he died so young that we'll never know what he became, uh, what he would have become. But it's just it's just so similar to now. And it creates this, this moment when people had to reinvent the wheel of Christianity. So it gives you a, a whole new perspective about what Jesus was actually talking about. 
uh, because they had to build it back from the ground up. That is so interesting. We don't often stop and think about that, the similarities between the Romantic era and our society today. I sometimes, I sometimes joke that since people only really think about uh, World War II in history and the fall of the Roman Empire. They think everything is like World War II. (laughs) 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 But but in fact, this was a moment tremendously like ours. Yes, yeah. Well, the heart of the Bible's message, we believe, is, is fairly simple, and yet most of us will admit there are truths contained within its pages that really require digging deep. In your book, you write about how puzzling the Sermon on the Mount was to you. Your son gave you the brilliant advice to set out to know Christ in order to better understand his words and message. Well, now that you've been on that journey and discovered so much, how would you explain the Beatitudes? Well, you know, what my son said to me was, he said, I, I said, I'm having a hard time understanding this exactly. But, and some of it just sounds wrong to me. And, and he said, the pro- your problem is you're trying to understand the philosophy in- instead of trying to get to know a person. Hmm. And the minute he said it, I thought, that, what a brilliant thing to say, because when you, when you know somebody, I mean, if you think of, say, somebody you really know well, like your spouse or your, your parent, your mom, your dad, your brothers, sisters, best friend, you, you don't really think of them like, oh, dad, he has a, this certain philosophy of life. What, what it is, is you can tell what he would say in a given situation. You would think about, oh, if, you know, dad would like to be here because he would really enjoy seeing this. You start to know what's in his mind a little bit, you know. And, and I realized that that was the right way to approach Jesus, that he wasn't laying out a system uh, of ideas. He was giving you himself. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And so you had to get to know him in order to know the way and the truth and the life. And so having, you know, I, I did this experiment, essentially. I taught myself Greek so I could read the Bible in the oldest language we have it in. And I, I, I read it without any theology. I didn't care what any church said. I didn't even care what Paul said. I didn't care what anybody thought. Just I just wanted to hear what Jesus was saying and try and get to know him. And I came away feeling that the Sermon on the Mount is at the core of certain things that Jesus was trying to do. You know, he said, he said, I want the joy that's in me to be in you. You know, I want you to have life in abundance. I want you to be a a branch of the vine. He was trying to tell you he wanted he wanted you to see the world as he saw it. That's what he wanted. The more you know him, the more he's in you the more you see the world as he saw it, and the, and the, happy, the more joyful you are. I don't like to say happy because when sad things happen, you're sad, and when happy things happen, you're happy. Right. But to be joyful, to be joyful is to be fully engaged with life, right. to understand that when you're walking down the street, it, something is happening. Your experience of walking down the street has never happened before, and, and it will never happen again. It's a unique moment in God's creation that is actually a continuation of God's creation. And and I think that what Jesus was trying to do, you know, so, so many people look at Christianity as as don't be bad or you'll be punished, be good, and then you'll get a reward. And I don't think that's actually the, the approach that I came away with. I came away with an approach that said, you know, all this stuff about, you know, lust and greed and anxiety and all that stuff, it's getting in your way. It's getting in your way. You know, just put it aside and then and then let go of everything and follow me and you will see something that you have not seen before. Mm. And, and that's what I came away with. And I have to say, writing the book, 
it just made my faith, I mean, my faith was very solid, but suddenly it exploded. Uh, and I, I now, like every day, see something new in, in the world through, through the eyes of, of this person who has become the, the vine that I'm a branch on, you know. I think the title you selected, The Truth and Beauty, sums up the book very well. What is truth and why is it so important for our time? Well, the truth, you know, it's funny. I just was reading a, a little ghost story that had the line in it just the other day, had, had a line in it, evil is the opposite of reality. And I just thought, what a what a brilliant insight. You know, when you let go of the truth, you let go of everything. Right. You know, you let go of all, all your joy. I mean, you know, one of the, the biggest truths in the world, I think, is that that other people are um, are so are just as rich and alive as you are. And when when you try to see that about them, you start to love them as yourself, you know, because you realize they too are this act of creation that's going on uh, in in the midst of the creation. And, you know, to to think that because because some people see one thing and some people see another, that the truth is relative, that, you know, uh, uh, one thing is as good as another, one culture is as good as another, uh, is to just live in a lie. It doesn't even make sense. It just makes you feel good for a while until finally you feel really bad because you're totally, <laughs> totally lost. Uh, I think I think the kind of truth, of course, that I'm talking about is not necessarily the truth of two plus two equals four, but the truth that 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 we understand with our whole bodies and minds and hearts and souls. Uh, that's why the, the title comes from a poem by John Keats, where he, he says, beauty is, is truth and truth is beauty. That's all you know on earth and all you need to know. And you think about that. When I first heard that, that was a very puzzling line to me. Well, what, what does that mean? And then you realize that the beauty that he's talking about is not, you know, you like yellow flowers and I like red flowers or, you know, you like sunsets and I like starlight, whatever. It's all those things that are really are a matter of taste. Mm -hmm. He was talking about that shock of understanding that comes at certain moments when you face something that is utterly and entirely and deeply true. And when you see that, when you see that beauty is truth, what you realize is that the human being is a God made machine for learning the truth. He has everything that he needs to connect with God, to connect with the God who made him. Mm -hmm. And and what these poets understood is is that you're not your inner experience can be deluded. You can delude yourself. You can see dragons where there are no dragons, or you can think you're in love when you're not in love, or you can tell yourself that slavery is okay. You know, you can do all those things, but you're just wrong, right? But when but when you get it right, you're acting, as one of the poets said, in collaboration with the one great mind. You're acting in you're working with God. And that, I think, is what Jesus meant when he said you are a branch of a vine and you can't bear fruit if you're not on that vine. And so and so when you understand that, you start to say, well, if somebody is a man and he tells me oh, inside, I feel like a woman. You know, he certainly is having an experience, but he's not working in collaboration with reality. He's not working in collaboration with the uh, with the creation. If somebody says, oh, you know, uh, some people say that. Uh, killing a baby in the womb is wrong, but other people say it's right. So what's the difference? Well, you know, no, there actually is a moral truth and you can find it uh, if you stay connected and work in collaboration with God. Right. And so 
right now I look around and I, especially young people, uh, you know, I, I, I talk before the lockdowns and everything. I spoke a lot at colleges and young people are really lost and unhappy. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, young, young women especially are miserable, but when young women are miserable, eventually young men become angry and lost, you know, and I'm seeing a lot of that. And it's, and I, my audience at my podcast is very young and I, I hear a lot of it. Uh, and it doesn't have to be that way. You know, there, there actually is a, a purpose. You were put here with a purpose. And that purpose is to become the man or woman God made you to be. And you do that by collaborating with his creation, you know, by creating in keeping with his creation, by being a, a branch of his vine. Oh, very well said. This is definitely a, a unique and fascinating book. And, and we would highly recommend it. Where can our audience find your book? Well, they can get it on Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble. Uh, I, I think a lot of uh, religious bookstores will have it too. It actually helps me a little bit if they don't mind shopping at Amazon. It helps me uh, when they shop there because it m- makes the book go up the rankings, which uh, <laughs> which is always very helpful. Um, but I think you should be able to get it anywhere you buy books, especially online. Good to know. We'll be sure to include that information in our podcast description. Thank you. I appreciate that. A Life of Truth, that is Jesus, is a life of beauty and a life of joy. Andrew, it has been a delightful conversation. We appreciate your conservative values and your love for God. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for tuning in today to Broken Vessels, Hidden Treasures. It is our hope and prayer that you will find the grace and goodness of God even in trials. We'd love to hear from you, and your feedback is important to us. You can reach out to Paul and Tabitha with comments, questions, or to share an episode with a friend in need through our website at bvhtministries.org.